Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? Is it nor it is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. Got the reference? It's not that, actually. Got the reference? Anyone tell me where that's from? Absolutely. Montague gave it away. This is Juliet speaking. She's just done the whole Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou? Romeo, I spared you that Sunday morning. Uh, She's just done that whole piece, and then she begins to press into this question, what's in a name? It's a question she's asking in connection to Romeo. And her theory is that if Romeo didn't have the same name, that is to say, if he wasn't Romeo and if he wasn't a Montague, he would still have the same essence. He'd be just as sweet. He'd be just as charismatic, as beautiful. And she would love him just as much. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I came across this. We could take that off the screen. I came across... Uh, this week, a theory first proposed in the New Scientist in 1994. For those of you who are keen New Scientist readers, you may remember this one. It's called Nominative Determinism. Anybody heard of that? No. Oh, thank you, Jordan. No, you haven't. Okay. Nominative Determinism is, is, is a theory developed which suggests that our names can be determinative. In, in other words, they can shape our sense of self our identities, and even, says the theory, our careers. Our names can be determinative in our lives. And let's have that first quote on the screen. It was proposed by two scientists who uh, came across, so they said this, we recently came across a new book, they wrote, Pole Positions, the Polar Regions and the Future of the Planet, by Daniel Snowman. Then a couple of weeks later, we received a copy of London Under London, a subterranean guide one of the authors of which is Richard Trench. All right, so it's not exactly great evidence for the theory, but this got these two scientists thinking, is there anything in this? Is there some determinative power in names? Now, the trouble with this is that whenever you see a theory like this, you begin to see evidence of it everywhere, don't you? And I came across a little bit of evidence this week that I just thought I wanted to share with you in order to sort of bolster the theory in our community, maybe to give it some legs. Did you know uh, the managing director of the dairy company Danon UK, his name is Bruno Fromage. <laughs> Isn't that glorious? Do you know there's a Dutch architect called, called um, you have to work with me on this one, Rem Koolhaas. <laughs> Good. Obviously, you know the poet William Wordsworth, Former White House press secretary under Ronald Reagan was Larry Speaks. A goalkeeper, a French goalkeeper in Ligue 1, now retired, Dominique Dropsy. (laughs) You know, uh, former British Airways Aviation, had I think the head of aviation actually there, was Rod Muddle. And uh, this one I came across just this morning, just finishing finishing touches of the sermon, folks. Uh, the, The mother of Buzz Aldrin you know, the chap that went to the moon. Her, her name was Marion Moon. There you go. There's something in it, folks. In the Bible, there is a power to naming and to names. It's clear that all the way through the scriptures, God 
gives power to people's names. He names people. He, he steps in in certain circumstances to ensure that certain people receive certain names because those names will be determinative in their lives. Their, those names will shape these people's, their identity, their purpose, and even the wider story into which they fit. Names matter. We see time and time again that where somebody has an experience of God and their life changes, their name is also changed. Saul becomes Paul. Abraham becomes Abraham, the father of many nations. We see that uh, Peter, Simon becomes Peter the rock on which Jesus uh, builds his church. Perhaps it should become come as no, no surprise for us, therefore, that God takes such an intimate involvement in the naming of Jesus. What I want to do uh, this morning as we, as we begin a new series, a series in, I guess, what we're calling basics, where we're looking at the fundamentals, the, the basics, the building blocks, if you like, cue next slide, of the Christian faith. There we go. That is our own building. You can see the, the, the arty snow on the bricks. How we wish those bricks were in the wall. <laughs> As we embark on this series where we look at some of the fundamentals, the building blocks of the Christian faith, I want us to ask the question, who is Jesus? And really for a, for a Christian or for somebody involved in any way in the Christian faith or even uh, uh, trying to investigate what an involvement in the Christian faith might even be like were we to take uh, that step, uh, we need to ask that question, who is Jesus? In fact, there is no more important question for somebody who is involved or in and around uh, the Christian faith. There's no more important question than the question, who is Jesus? And, and I want to get at that question by asking another question. That question is the one that Julia asked. What's in a name? And really, we begin that journey in Matthew's gospel, which Louise read to us this morning. We begin in Matthew, 1, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If you've got a Bible, please open up. We're going to be looking at this in a little bit more detail. Now, Louise, I want you to know that out of the abundance of my love for you, I didn't ask you to read from verse 1. Now, if you'd have read from verse 1 of chapter 1, you would have been reading a litany, a very long list of names. And some of those names are fairly complex. So I spared you that, that trial. And we have to ask the question, particularly those of us who are new. Now, by the way, if you've read, if you've read Matthew's gospel, if you've tried to read a gospel, you've probably just skipped over this thinking, what the heck is that for? But for those of us who haven't read much of the Bible before, maybe we don't understand what's going on there. Well, the reason that Matthew begins his gospel with a long list of names a family history, if you like, a, a genogram, a genealogy. The reason he does that is because he's trying to locate the rest of the story about Jesus within a much bigger story. A much bigger story. And that bigger story isn't just Jesus. Jesus doesn't show up out of nowhere like a, a bolt in the night. He shows up as the continuation of uh, some would say, the, he himself would say, the fulfillment of a much bigger story. And so Matthew takes that story all the way back to Abraham, who I mentioned before. The father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. He goes all the way back. It, it's as if, as some films do this, don't they? You begin uh, certain films, and I can't think of an example right now. And even if I had, I, as soon as I watch a film, I forget it. Such that I've watched entire films 
for the second time and only realized I've watched, I've watched them before when it's come to the closing credits. Yes. Praise the Lord for bad memory. You get to enjoy things twice. It's wonderful. Some films begin, don't they, with the big picture. You start with the big, the macro story, the, the massive frame, and then you narrow down into the small frame. That is what Matthew's doing here. So he begins with this big, big story. What is this big, big story all about? What is the story of the Bible about? What is the Bible all about? Well, I want to suggest this morning, the Bible, you see it in a lot of different ways, but the Bible, one way to see it is that it is a, a drama, a, a story. And I don't, I don't mean that fi- as a fictional, I don't mean it's made up, but I mean it's a narrative, it's a story, it's a drama made up of different acts. I want to suggest just this morning for simplicity's sake that there are four acts to the Bible. The first act, the act of creation, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what we see at the beginning of the Bible story, that God is the creator. And that whatever he created, day by day he created. And he said, that is good. So we have firstly a God who is powerful, who can create. A God who blesses what he creates. This isn't some miserly God. This isn't screw, some cosmic Scrooge. This is a good, kind, creative, loving God who creates and blesses what he creates. And he gets to the pinnacle of creation and he creates Adam and Eve, male and female. And we're told that he creates them in his image, in his likeness. That is to say, he imbues, he infuses into Adam and Eve some property that was properly belonging to him. That they resemble him. They're a chip off the old block. They carry something of him, both in terms of their essence, their character, their DNA, if you like, but also in terms of their role, their purpose. And when he finishes making them, he says, not good, but very good, very good. He says, this is the best thing I've made. And and creation uh, moves from uh, basic to ever-increasing complexity, ever-increasing value. And he finishes with Adam and Eve. In fact, he finishes with Eve. The creation of highest worth, clearly, in God's creation. Male and female. In his image, he creates them in his likeness. And he says, this is very good. And he gives them a role. And the role is that they're to oversee, if you like. They they bring oversight to creation. They're to carry on doing what God has been doing. To bring about this uh, and to steward and to oversee this ongoing project of creation. By the way, this is why recycling matters. This is why taking care of of the environment matters. This is not something that's peripheral to, to, to to, I think, a Christian faith today. We can't get away with saying God's going to burn it all and start again. No, God gives us stewardship over creation. And the church needs to be at the forefront of this, this whole area of how we steward and care for God's creation that he's put, in, put into our hands. He gives us the role of oversight. Our fate somehow is bound up with the fate of creation. And at the heart of it, we have this, this gift This perfect relationship with God. He walks, it says in Genesis 2, uh, around the garden, this picture of delight and presence and intimacy, the Garden of Eden, in the cool of the day. 
It's a picture of intimacy, of perfect relationship between us and our Father God, the Creator, and also us, one another, and the rest of creation. And all of that flows from this relationship that God has with us. It is a beautiful picture, perfect presence. And our role is to extend the boundaries of Eden, if you like, so that Eden would encompass the whole of creation. It's an ongoing, dynamic picture of creation, I think. It's a beautiful picture. And then we have the second act. It doesn't go so well, and those of you who have read the story already, you know this. Uh, we all know this because we experience this every day. We have the fall. And that, that moment, if you like, to just to cut the chase, to the chase is what happens is that rather than choosing a lifelong dependence, obedience to God, a, a fruitful relationship in which we do what he says, we choose instead self-governance and the word would be autonomy, self-leadership. And in that moment of choosing our own way rather than his way, our relationship naturally with our Father is affected. But because we live in this interrelated picture where our relationships with one another are also connected to our relationship with Him, and indeed our relationship to the whole of creation is also affected, that breaking of our relationship to God breaks the other stuff as well. And so we experience alienation from one another. We experience alienation from creation. We have to toil and labor Stuff doesn't come easy. The second act, the fall, and the rest of the story, if I'm going to simplify it in a way that certainly probably does violence to the text, but the rest of the Bible is God's relentless quest to bring his people and indeed his whole creation back to himself. The rest of it. Everything after Genesis 3 is God's relentless quest to bring his creation and his people, and through his people, his whole creation, back to himself. And we look forward to a day, Act 4, restoration, when God will finish. He will finish that project of restoration. Uh, as we have it in Narnia, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. That every tear will be wiped away, all pain will be transformed, and death will be finished with. This is the Bible in brief. How the heck are we going to get there? How the heck are we going to arrive at that point of restoration? Well, God's answer, we're going to break down restoration if you have the next slide. I just want to break down that uh, rescue sorry, picture into three different phases. And the first phase of, of the rescue is that God chooses a people to be his own representatives on earth. Here's the thing. God doesn't have a lot to work with at this point. Everything, Bob Dylan said it this way. No use jiving, no use joking, everything is broken. Everything's broken. God doesn't have a lot to work with, but he chooses a people. He says, I'm going to begin here. I'm going to make a start with Abraham. And out of Abraham, he creates a nation, and the nation is Israel. Now, the point of this people is not that they have it all together. You read the Bible, they clearly don't have it together. They don't have it together better than anyone else. But he chooses them to be his representatives on earth. The point is never that he's only going to work with them. 
The point is that while he works with them, he might create a holy people, a set-apart people, that everyone else could look at and say, wow, their God must be something else. I wonder who it is. This people, Israel, are to be a light. This is the biblical language, a light to the nations. A people of his presence set apart, in a sense, to make everyone else think, to make everyone wonder what's going on there. They're to live differently, more justly, with more mercy and compassion, with more grace, filled with God's presence. They're to be a a picture of heaven on earth. But of course there's a problem. And the problem is they're broken like the rest of us. And Israel fails in her vocation to live differently. Now the word Israel means struggle. Israel could not escape her name. And she struggled to follow. Struggled to obey. Just like Adam and Eve struggled to obey. How can Israel be a light when Israel is lost in the darkness? It's into this story, this big story, that Matthew steps with his gospel. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, what I'm about to tell you is part of a really big story. And something is happening right now that completes this story. And unless you understand this big story, you're not going to understand this moment. This, Matthew is saying, is the turning point of the big story. The one story. And church, this is the story we find ourselves in. And unless we understand that we're in this story, we're not going to know how to live it. And we're not going to understand who Jesus is. And we're not going to understand what the whole thing means. But if we understand this, we can begin to piece together, together, how we live in light of all of this stuff. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about, verse 18. That's what we read. Jesus. I want to just pick out a couple of names given here. The first one. The first one is Jesus. The Hebrew is Yeshua. It's the same name, actually. It's funny, Claire shared that uh, thing from Joshua earlier. It's the same name, Joshua, Yeshua. And it means the Lord saves. It means salvation or deliverance or, if you like, rescue. That's what the picture is of. The picture of Jesus' name means rescue. Now, whenever Israel thought about rescue, they'd have been thinking about two things at the same time. They'd have been thinking about the big story. The one I just told you about. But they'd also been thinking of a little story. Which, if you like, enacted the big story. And that little story was the story of the Exodus. And again, just putting this in briefly. The Exodus was the moment where God released his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And you may remember at Sunday school, if you ever went, talking about Moses leading his people through the Red Sea. And, you know, you had uh, the Egyptian armies headed by Pharaoh on one side. And on the other side, you had the sea. And the people of Israel were trapped in the middle. and They had nowhere to go. And they desperately wanted to be free of slavery. And they were powerless to find their way out. And God, in that moment, 
rescued them. He saved them. He delivered them. He yeshuaed them. What did he save them from? He saved them from slavery to Pharaoh. He saved them from subjection to an evil ruler, a tyrant who broke their backs with difficult work. He saved them from Pharaoh. What did he save them from? Pharaoh, what did he save them for? He saved them for the promised land. He saved them for a new relationship with him. He saved them for restoration, for, for new life. He saved them for himself. What Israel needed in that moment was somebody who knew their way out of Egypt. They didn't know. 400 and something years since they got there. They needed someone who could get them out of Egypt. Somebody who knew their way out of Egypt. And if you are the owner of a grey Audi registration, (laughs) then you're a lucky person. This is the story that Israel would have been thinking about in that moment. This is the story of rescue. This is the story into which Jesus steps. And what we find in the New Testament is Jesus picks up all of these themes. And he says, I'm going to do that today. It's not the old exodus, but it's a new exodus. I'm going to lead you out from slavery. Save from what? Save from slavery. Not this time to Pharaoh, but to a much bigger foe. Sin and death. Sin and death. The problem that we have is not Pharaoh. The problem we have, says the New Testament, is not that we're bad. The problem we have is that we're dead. Spiritually dead. And without somebody... To save us, somebody to rescue us, somebody to help us, we will remain in just that place. And yes, we need forgiveness. Because our deadness, we we had a part to play in our deadness. But beyond beyond forgiveness, we need somebody to liberate us. The problem is that we're slaves. We're saved from, in this new exodus that Yeshua brings, we're saved from slavery. We're saved for life with God. Life with God. Life in his presence. Like the garden. Life with intimacy with God is the cornerstone. Life where we know God. We don't just know about him. We know him. Friendship with God. That our creator becomes our close friend. That we can know that we're blessed by him. You know, that you can know that his word of your life is good. Very good. That he doesn't look at you and say, bad. That's not his word over your life. His word is good. Very good. That's what we're saved for. John puts it like this. Jesus puts it like this. Now this, in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life. That they know you. Jesus is talking about his Father. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Israel needed someone who knew their way out of Egypt. We need someone who knows their way out of a grave.
We need someone who knows their way out of the grave. We need someone who knows how to get out of death and over to the other side. And that is why Yeshua. That is why Jesus. We need a savior. We need somebody to rescue us. It's as if we're lying by the side of the road to borrow uh, another biblical picture. No pulse. No friends. Somebody comes along with defibrillators and just jump starts our heart. That's what we need. Salvation. We don't need someone to polish the exterior. We don't need makeup. We need heart surgery. We need a new life. Yeshua. The second word given for Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, since I hear the word Emmanuel, I always think of Emmanuel Petit, an Arsenal central midfielder from the 90s and early 2000s. And that isn't the picture that the Bible has. It's something much bigger. And again, this word, this name goes back to the Old Testament, a prophecy given by Isaiah. And Emmanuel means God with us. And the incredible thing, the surprising thing about the solution that God offers to the problem of slavery, of sin and death that we all experience It's that God's solution, the surprising solution is that God becomes part of the problem. He gets his hands dirty. He invests himself fully in the problem. That God doesn't stay far off. That he doesn't, if you like, zap us from a distance. Surely he had it within his power to do that. But instead of zapping us, sending us some kind of memo, sort it out down there. God invests himself fully in his creation. He becomes part of his creation. And he takes the problem into his own hands. Emmanuel, God with us. Athanasius, the theologian of the early church, said, He became as we are so that we might become as he is. The reason that God is able to save us in Jesus is because this God is God with us. God with us. Not just an older brother, but God in flesh with us. Jesus is our Savior. He's the one who delivers us from darkness. He's the one who knows the way out the grave. But the one who knows the way from the grave is the one who made us. This is God with us. God himself stepping into this story. And God with us was the plan all along. In the first act in creation, the point was that God wanted to be with us. He didn't create because he was needy. He didn't create because he was bored. He created because out of the abundance of his love, he wanted to share his love with another. And in the fall, the travesty and the tragedy of the divorce, the great divorce, as C.S. Lewis has it, was that distance was created between God and his creation. There was an absence of presence. The rescue story finds its climax in God drawing close. It's all about his presence, folks. And the Holy Spirit, God's great gift, is given to the church that God might get closer still. Not just be in a physical body as he was with Jesus in one place at one time, but be with us all in all places at all times. That God would in fact be living within us. And the final picture of restoration given in the Bible, see this in Revelation right at the end. 
comes across strongly in chapter 22 of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. The final picture is of God being once again with his creation and his whole creation being shot through with his presence. And the prophets put it like this, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. The goal is presence. And Jesus is God's presence. And here's what that means. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God sounds like. Jesus is what God acts like. Jesus is what God thinks like. God hasn't left us in any doubt about how he's going to respond to us. How he'll behave toward us. But in Jesus we see the, the image of God fully captured. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus has made known to us fully what God is like. No more guessing. No more questioning. No more asking. No more wondering. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. And we see uh, later, uh, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Not just a bit of his fullness. But all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. There's the rescue and the restoration. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We're going to get to the cross in a few weeks. This is Jesus. The one who saves. This is Jesus. The God who is with us. So what? What's in a name? What is in his name? Two things I've said this morning. Firstly, what is in his name is salvation. I don't just, in his title, I don't just mean in some kind of a word on a page. I mean that in the name of Jesus, in the life, in the, in the example, in Jesus, salvation is offered to every man and woman. That rescue is possible. That wherever we get to in our lives, wherever we are, Jesus has another word. Jesus has an offer. Jesus has, there is always the possibility of rescue. There is always the possibility of new life emerging from the midst of death. There is always the possibility of order emerging from chaos. There is always the possibility of grace in the darkest place. Because Jesus is salvation. And that means new life is on offer to every person. What does that mean for us? It means that Jesus is working on the, the, the most intractable, the biggest problems of our age. He's working to bring about salvation. He's working to bring about rescue. And he will not quit until he wins, until he finishes what he's begun. That's what it means for all of us. That means that the, the, the rubbish, the difficult and more than difficult, the tragic stuff we read every day on BBC News or wherever else you get your news from is not the end of the story. That there's another name. That there's a better word that can be spoken. Yeshua, Jesus, God is my salvation. And that's the word not just for all of us. It's the word for each of us, for me and you, that God is at work now in our lives. 
And I don't care whether you know him or not. I'm telling you, he's at work in your life right now. He is at work to bring about salvation, to bring about life, because that's in his name. That's what he does. That's who he is. Yeshua, salvation for you and I. But in Jesus, God is with us. He's with us as he takes us from death to life. What does that mean for us? Jesus is God with us, filling the earth with his presence. He's filling Nottingham with his presence now. He's filling your workplace with his presence. He's filling your university with his presence. He's filling your home, your bedroom with his presence. He's filling the most broken part of you with his presence right now. He's filling your sin with his presence. There's no place he won't go to bring you home. He's filling your shame, your guilt, your fear, your loss, your agony with his presence. He loves you, he fills you this morning with his presence. What does it mean for me and you? It means a life lived in the presence of God is possible. It means he's the end to the doubt about what God is like. It means that we can know God is for us because we know that God is with us. I love that song we sang at the beginning. If our God is for us, who can ever stop us? Something though powerful about declaring that. It doesn't always look triumphant like that song. I think sometimes imagine it's wonderful, but it doesn't always look triumphant. Sometimes it looks broken. Sometimes it, it, it's staggering forward on our hands and knees. And in those moments, God is with us. As much as he's with us in the triumphant moments, and we thank God for both. My question as we close is, what does this name mean to you? Who is this man to you? Are you open to the possibility, again, that he is Yeshua? He is your salvation. Maybe you don't know him yet. Might he become your salvation? Might he become an offer of new life? Is it possible that he might be Emmanuel, God with you? Is it possible that he's been with you all along and he's waiting today for you to recognize his presence with you? Now, it might not be for you that Jesus proves it to you like that in a moment. He just declares himself in a powerful Damascus Road experience. I've been praying for one of those all of my life. Let me tell you, I go on praying. But when I look back over my life, I see a, a picture and story of God's rescue, of God's presence with me. For many of us, it's the other way around. It's that by trusting in this name, by making a step forward into trusting this name, that we experience that this man is who he says he is. That he is Yeshua. He is Jesus. He is salvation. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Why don't we stand?